Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, novelist Anne Enright who won the 2007 Booker Prize, and the celebrated Column Tobin sit down together to discuss the English sentence and the Irish mind. As Enright says, because of her country's relationship to the colonizing power, there is a refusal to talk like anybody in the ruling class. Thus, Ireland feels free to adapt, play with, usurp, mimic, and make the English language its own. Irish writers both, Enright and Tobin, coax out and commandeer humor, history, anecdote, theory, and a football song to illuminate a culture which treats writers like heroes. A culture where cleaning ladies imitate William Butler Yeats and James Joyce's novel Ulysses is occasion for Dublin's annual Bloomsday holiday. In that great battle between the image and the word, observes Colm Tobin, between Wilde's first play and Beckett's last play, the word remains primary. Recorded before a live audience at the center at Cathedral Plaza as part of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, here are Anne Enright and Colm Tobin. If you walk along South Leinster Street, going away from the bottom of Grafton Street, there's an extraordinary thing on the gable end of a building on the left-hand side which overlooks the playing fields of Trinity College. It simply says in fading letters on the gable end of the building, Finn's Hotel. It wasn't put there by the tourist board. It actually was there all along. It was the hotel where Nora Barnacle worked. It was just there as you come towards that building where James Joyce first saw Nora Barnacle. The working title for his book, Finnegan's Wake, was Finn's Hotel. He glorified the first day that they met which was the 16th of June, 1904. He glorified it as the day of Ulysses. He commemorated this day. So as you're walking along, you're walking along at the, not, not only the very spot, but one thing left over from where she worked. If you look straight ahead, you're looking at Clare Street. Clare Street has a building where Samuel Beckett's father had his quantity surveying business. And in the top floor of that building... Samuel Beckett in the 1930s, when he returned to Ireland, at one point wrote. He promised his mother that he would also give language lessons. But it seems to me he did very little, except wander the city and sit in the room in a state of indolence and despair before going back to France. And then if you walk out of that building and go on further to the corner of Merrion Square, you will see the house where Oscar Wilde was brought up. Not where he was born, he was born around the corner, but this building on the corner of Marion Square, there's a statue of him opposite, where many parties were given by his mother and his father, and where he was formed. Now, if you turn right, uh, you're in trouble, because you're walking up towards the Marion Hotel, and the Marion Hotel was the former home of the Duke of Wellington. And when they asked the Duke of Wellington if he was Irish, he said, oh, oh no, just because you're born in a stable doesn't make you a horse. <laughs> and the business and the relationship of Ireland to Beckett, or, or of Beckett to Ireland, and of Wilde and of Joyce, is a complex and gnarled business. That um, when they asked Beckett in French if he was English, Beckett said, au contraire. <laughs> and there was always in Beckett's work that sense of playfulness, of turning everything on its head that you get in Wilde's work. Increasingly, I think we see Wilde as an Irish writer in London, that the way in which he mocked their accents and dealt with their manners in plays like The Importance of Being Earnest could only have been done by an Irishman, that an Englishman simply couldn't have seen them in that same way. And both Beckett and Wilde wrote in French. Wilde wrote Salome in French. Um, Beckett wrote about half his work in French. All three writers used the city of Paris as a sanctuary, much more than they used, for example, London as a sanctuary, which, which they really didn't use. And in, in, you know, all three of them haunt us now as writers in various ways, in the way in which all three of them 
took language and worked it for all it was worth. In Wilde's case, pure wit. In Joyce's case, the the sheer expansionary nature of his imagination from the beautiful, melancholy stories of Dubliners into the extraordinary tapestry of Ulysses into whatever one wants to describe as Finnegan's Wake. And similarly with Beckett, where he realised that Joyce had explored every possibility of what, what consciousness looks like in language if you try and slow it down and if you try and add, make a book as big as a city, make a book as big, big as, as a mind, make a book as big as a country. And for Beckett then the whole point was to bring that down to its bare bones and see how much expression you could get from its bare bones. Now sometimes... We both live in Dublin, so sometimes you walk these streets and you have everything else on your mind, because my travel agent is also in that street, and I'm often worried about have I paid them. You know, and and, I'm just there. The dental hospital is just there, and a student dentist years ago did something horrible just to hear this part of me. And I often, you know... In other words, it's not as though you walk these streets permanently thinking of these people. Uh, You have many other matters on your mind. And just around the corner is still there, which is astonishing, Sweeney's Chemist Shop, where Leopold Bloom went in to get a prescription for Molly and ended up buying lemon soap. And you can go in now and they say, are you here for the lemon soap? Because, <laughs> because you can still buy lemon soap in Sweeney's Chemist. And I think that sense of... Um, that a sense of importance was given to daily life in Ireland by writers, that therefore the word became primary in the same way as, for example, if you were talking about Sunset Boulevard or parts of Hollywood, you would say it was here really where the image took over from the word and that great battle that's been going on for the last hundred and something years between the, or actually 20,000 years between the image and the word. That, that in Ireland in these years, the years between Wilde's first play and Beckett's last play, that you have the, a society in which the word remains primary and in which even in childhood, it, it just didn't, it doesn't even occur to you that there is anything more important than the word. And that in, in this city also, I think it's true to say, I don't know if you agree with me about this, Anne, that, that being a young writer... And if, you, if somebody saw a young writer in the street, that that would matter enormously, as it might matter in Palo Alto, if you saw a Google millionaire going by, you'd, <laughs> you'd, you'd look and say, that's the Google, that's Steve, or whatever, that's so-and-so, you know. That's, that in Dublin, if you saw a writer in the street, it, it would matter more than seeing anybody else from the society in the street. And that it's a funny heritage to... It's a funny business to inherit. It, it's double-edged. It's not necessarily easy... I mean, I'm saying you don't think about it all the time, but nonetheless, living in a society where the word is so important is both a gift and a burden. So I suppose I just wanted to start by asking you, do you agree with everything I've just said? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I suppose I do. Um, I remember the woman who came in to do on a Friday called Kitty. You You wouldn't call her cleaning a lady. That would be the wrong words imitating Yeats walking up and down Stevens's Green. And, uh, and she walked up and down the hall w- with her hands behind her back, tapping the, hand, her, the hands together. I've, I've also heard people talking about driving with Seamus Heaney and watching his hand going. So people are actually fetishising the process of writing to that degree. Say, so, oh, are you writing now? Um, are you writing even as I'm speaking to you? Well, no, I'm speaking to you. And uh, so it is, it is interesting that writers have become in some way fetish, fetishised to a slight degree. Um, people seeing a young writer walking down the street will say something unpleasant about that young writer. That's the first thing they'll do. There's quite a hothouse feeling uh, to the city still. And so the Irish audience is incredibly antagonistic and hard to please until you cross some invisible line, after which you're completely loved and lionised and they loved you all along. (laughs) 
Um, they just didn't uh, make it clear enough, perhaps, at the time. And that line can be crossed with some difficulty by writing back to Ireland from another place. And I, I think it's interesting that all of these writers were exiles. The tax breaks for writers now in Ireland mean that you have to be in exile in Ireland. <laughs> so you just pretend you're not in Ireland. I'm in ta- tax exile in a small town outside Dublin and, and don't consider myself being in Ireland at all. It's just I'm incidentally living there. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I think it is, you know, uh, when you're growing up in this country, being a writer is something to be. And so that's, that's one of the reasons that we have so many writers. I saw Beckett's work for the first time when the actor Jack McGarren came to this small town near where I lived and he performed a Beckett one-man show and he had worked with Beckett. He's a marvellous production of Kraft's Last Tape and he had been in, involved in a production of Endgame which Beckett directed and he became a very close friend of Beckett's. Um, I knew somebody, uh, she, was a, she was a critic for Le Monde and she met Suzanne Beckett, you know, Beckett's wife, on the street in Paris one day and she said, in French, I'm not going to do her French, she said, uh, how are you, Suzanne? And Suzanne said, things could not be worse. <laughs> so what's wrong? The Irish have arrived. <laughs> And they won't go. You're listening to novelists Anne Enright and Colm Tobin. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic and roving cultural forum. On Monday, April 7th, Socalo presents An Evening with Luis Valdez, moderated by Oscar Garza, editor-in-chief of Tu Ciudad magazine. Valdez visits Socolo on the 30th anniversary of the premiere of his groundbreaking musical, Zoot Suit. And on Tuesday, April 8th, don't miss Sacramento v. columnist Daniel Weintraub's critique of Arnold Schwarzenegger. The California governor has squandered much of the advantage he once enjoyed with missteps, bad decisions, and poor execution. His final three years in the job will help determine whether Schwarzenegger is on the cutting edge of a broad new movement or just a one-time phenomenon in U.S. politics. Admission to these and all Socolo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socolola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Anne Enright and Colm Tobin in a moment. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. Next time on Day to Day. How does art made of trash become a treasure? Initially they were $10, they were kind of like a gag gift. And then as the price grew, people started discussing them as art more. Is art's real value determined by its price? It has musicians like Moby wondering. My only hope is, I don't know, somehow music will transcend this. Valuing art in the age of free downloads. You know, a great song is a great song. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Ted Chen in for Larry Mantle. Larry will be back on Monday and have a wrap-up of the state Democratic Convention and efforts to unify the party. He'll also have an update on the escalating violence in Iraq. Also, in the wake of the Bear Stearns collapse, do there need to be changes in the regulation of U.S. financial markets to protect investors and taxpayers? That's on the next Air Talk, Monday at 10 a.m. on 89.3 KPCC. You can now get KPCC and NPR News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org where you'll find information on NPR Mobile from KPCC. Oh, and we're also still here at 89.3. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to novelists Anne Enright and Colm Tobin. The Irish in question were two actors, 
they were, who, who were called Jack McGarren and Patrick McGee. Beckett called them my two darlings, and he loved their work, and he wrote for them. And the great difference between these, th these were two leading actors of, in the Irish repertory. McGarren ended up working quite closely with Polanski. He did um, cul-de-sac, and he did Dance of the Vampires. Polanski recognised his genius as a lead actor. But, of course, in the English theatre, they could play the fool in Shakespeare, but they couldn't play a king. But on the Irish stage, in the plays of, of um, Singh, in the plays of Sean O'Casey, in the plays of Beckett, in, in that central repertoire that was established in the first half of the 20th century in Ireland, these were our lead actors, and their acting was anti-heroic acting. They simply played losers. They played people who were down on their luck. But they did so with enormous eloquence, and they held the stage in doing so. And, and I suppose if you were trying to say something about Irish writing, that business of exploring loss, pain, being a loser, which was almost given back to us in certain ways by American writing, writers like Raymond Carver later on, who I think took it from us in the first place and then gave it back to us, there has always been a connection. For example, Irish people love our American country music, but... Irish writers found America later on as a sort of place where you could find what you were looking for in the same way as these early writers did Paris. I mean, it's a lot to do with the uh, relationship to the colonising power, so that if the Irish are in the position in the performing arts of playing losers, as it were, that can also account for a kind of duality in their relationship to la language, one of which is a complete skittishness with the language, a refusal to take it seriously, a refusal to talk like anyone in the establishment and to play with words all the time. Or the other thing is to claim the language even more strongly. Um, I mean, I was reared, uh, as people in Gla um, Edinburgh are reared, saying that here the best English is spoken in Dublin. And you, I meet sometimes people from the Indian subcontinent who are great believers in punctuation, for example, and they do it properly. And we were weird to think that British people couldn't manage their own language. Um, but that, So it was our job to do that for them and to, to, for example, learn how to punctuate. And we also had a great uh, contempt for their tabloid press as well as everything else. Now, we were much too posh are much too superior to do that as well. I mean, I mean that impulse can, 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 that, that can result in second-rate and snobbish work. <laughs> I, 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 would you not agree? Uh, it's always hard, yes. <laughs> but uh, if we were to look at the specific relationship of the Irish to the words that they use, you have to, first of all, say that, that behind the Irish Hiberno-English is the lost language of Irish. And so there is a plaintiveness sometimes or a melancholy in the use of language that suggests that there's a shadow or, or, or that the real thing can be said in a different language. It's somehow no longer available to us to say the real thing. So we're either reaching for the real thing or not bothering at all with the real. Yeah, the, the, in Beckett's radio play, All That Fall, Mr Rooney says to poor Mrs Rooney, you sound like you're talking a dead language. And she said, oh, it will be dead in time, uh, just like our own dear Gaelic. There's that to be said. <laughs> so they're always in the background of that sense. If you look at the names of the places as indeed if you do in the United States, that some of the names of the places represent a, a much earlier culture that, that, that you, sometimes you have to stop um, and wonder about. The business is that I have a friend in Dublin, um, Anthony Cronin, and he interviewed Joyce's sister. And he said to her, your brother was a wonderful singer. And she said, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Was he as good as John McCormack, who was the great Irish tenor? And she said... Oh, no, 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 he was never as good. He was never as good a tenor as John McCormack. But the difference was that when our Jim sang, it broke your heart. And oddly enough, I know this is hard to imagine, but when Beckett was alone, he played the piano and sang Schubert for his own amusement. And that a lot of the time with some of our, with our contemporaries even, you realise they started as singers. They're failed singers. And that they actually then found 
prose with its rhythms was the nearest they could get to singing. Whereas, on the other hand, if you think about it, I mean, I don't want to keep going on with the difference, but just as one way of trying to define the Irish tradition is, is against maybe the English one, to say, can you imagine Evelyn Waugh singing or Graham Greene singing? I mean, that you just can't imagine. I mean, what would that be like? them singing, I mean, even them humming is hard to imagine. <laughs> um, can, can you imagine Philip Larkin singing? I mean, I know he loved jazz, but can you imagine his own voice? So, so that somehow in the back of this language that, that has been, when it's well used in Ireland, is an idea of a dead language or a language itself as something that, that, that isn't natural but is cultural that came with an army, as it were, and also that behind language is rhythm and that within a sentence is silence. And this is something... I, I just, I, I'm, I'm just um, going to ask you... Um, so the first, Irish, the first writer that hit me really hard emotionally that I felt when I read this book that this is the... Mo- you know that thing happens to you when you're 15 or 16 was, was of course, Hemingway. That that I don't know if Hemingway could sing. That's hard to imagine too, isn't it? <laughs> but the sentences could sing, and, and the amount he could leave out in the sentence, and the idea that what's not mentioned in the sentence is often what's most in the sentence. And what, what happened was that the paperback book became easily available, and that in families, I think like yours as well, reading was so honoured that if you were reading anything, you were left alone with it. You were never censored when you were reading. And therefore, quite early in, in my teens, I, I, I read Hemingway, Kafka, Sartre, Camus. I wouldn't have dreamt of reading an Irish writer. On the contrary, actually, although I'm not, um, I don't uh, see myself as fitting specifically within the Irish tradition or, or perhaps more renewing the Irish tradition than following it. Um, I read all of Frank O'Connor, Liam O'Flaherty, Liam O'Fuelon, Sean O'Fuelon, uh, Mary Lavin, they were all on the shelves. But there was everything, you see. It wasn't just... I, I, I didn't identify a kind of central line of, of writers, and I still haven't, actually, for, for a very long time. I mean, America was, of course, a great discovery, and specifically the discovery of that wonderful use of the subjective uh, I, the persona, the first person. Who in particular? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, there was a book of short stories called The Naked Eye in the in the house, and there were people like John Barth, uh, Donald Bartholm, and uh, Robert Coover in it. Uh, also, Sylvia Plath. And these were just, for an adolescent, they were explosive and, and incredibly interesting and fitted very well with the egotism of adolescence. But also... From personally, it's something to do with the playfulness of language or the skittishness of language for me, or its refusal, its refusal to adhere to the world. That the subjective point of view frees a writer like me up completely, because uh, they lay very little claim on knowing things or owning things or knowing they they don't know they can't see the entire world. Uh, they don't know what. So, so they just see their little bit of it. And so, especially perhaps for a woman writer, uh, it was possible to say very small things and to say very unsure things. Perhaps that is specifically an Irish thing as well, that you don't own it, that only, you know, somebody else owns it or somebody else may own it. So you can take the ball, you, you can run. You can, you're freer in that sense. Uh, but, 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 but isn't that what, what happens with Beckett, where, you know, you know, after Watt and after Murphy, that suddenly he finds something amazing, and you wonder how sudden it was or how strange it was when he moves into the trilogy and he simply writes in the first person, I will be dead soon. And that must have been an immense discovery. And there's a contemporary of ours, Patrick McCabe, who had written a number of novels, and then suddenly one day began his novel The Butcher Boy, 10 or 20, this is the beginning, 10 or 20 years ago, they were all after me on account of what I'd done on Mrs. Nugent. And you immediately feel the voice is liberated, that first-person voice is liberated. Mm-hmm. And did you, I mean, did you get that? Every time you write the word I down as a, as a fictional voice, do you get that? 
Oh, well, there's a, a considerable amount of bounce because it's always a different eye as well. Yeah, no, no, obviously, but you're inventing yeah. the characters. Yeah, and also it gives a great sense of escape. You're sitting there for a couple of years and you might as well be with somebody more interesting. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, possibly someone you made up, you know, that, that you've made up, yeah. I, I, we don't really, I mean, I don't know why we're up here together because we don't really have anything in common. <laughs> and... <laughs> and um, I'm absolutely fascinated and totally frightened at actually how you work, because it's me? exactly the opposite to how uh, I work. We are very so, opposite. So yes. if you could just maybe, just, just so I can shake my head and wonder, could you tell us again how you actually get to where you end? It's considerable difficulty, I think, is that, like every writer, and I'm sure you'd say the same yourself. But no, I work in the dark, and uh, uh, whether I know where I'm going or not, I pretend I don't know where I'm going. Um, I smell my way through the book, and uh, it's a painful and organic process. And I just, I, I'm very sentence-led. I look at the sentences that I've written, and I wonder what they mean. And then I, I, I figure it out from there. Whereas I know you know, because you tell me on the phone what you're writing and what's going to happen next. And you've no idea how jealous I am of someone who knows yeah, I would never, what happens next yeah, I, and has I, I, nerves I of steel not, and can actually say. It's not just And next. then, do you know what happened? It's not just next. I you would, did it I would, in the airport again. I wouldn't it next start book. the book what? until I had every single scene in my head. I wouldn't even take notes. And I would have... Moment by moment. I wouldn't have every image, obviously, because then as you work, you end up finding the images, finding the rhythms. But I wouldn't start then until I had a rhythm. And then I'd just simply write the thing down. And, um, and I know always where it's going to end. And, and, I've, and, and I've written five of them. Well, I'm nearly there with six now and some short stories. But I would never, ever do what you do, which is start and wonder where this is going to lead me. It would be the most frightening idea. I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't lead me anywhere. And um, then I, I walk along the street, you know, pondering over the whole thing. And eventually, when I have the whole thing in my head, I write it down. And that's the book. I know, but we also have, I mean, very different uses of language. I mean, we use language for almost different functions when we write in a funny way. I mean, if you were playing the piano, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I don't want to insult you or anything, um, but it, it would be that, that you would every so often just get a chord that would excite you so much by its sound. It would often be the end of a paragraph chord. And it excites the reader. I mean, I, mean, I'm, I, mean, I don't want to flatter you, but it's, it's some, some of those last <laughs> sentences of your paragraphs are very exciting in the same way as if, you, you know, in the, some of those Beethoven um, piano sonatas where just dong and something then happens from there. Um, what's that like when you do it? Well, I actually think that the writing process is not a, uh, you know, there are no mirrors in that place where you write. It's not a self-conscious process. It's almost like a, a loss of self-consciousness that you're not thinking about writing when you're writing, you're actually just writing, you're thinking about the words, that's what you're doing. So it's very hard to say what you're doing when you're writing, except you're writing, which is part of the mystery of it. So, like, the first go of it has great... If, if you get a go of it, it has a great sense of flow and great pleasure to be able to do that. And then you look at it and you rework it and, and, and you think it's terrible or you think it's great and you look at it again and again and again. But, I mean... I couldn't describe that first impulse to you or that first event because it's not describable because I'm, I can't think about it in that way. Well, do you but, plan the sentence before you write it or do you, do you just write it? Oh, no, I'd write it now. I would write it, yeah. Write it? Yes, it would go. I'd just go and write it, yeah. Would you cut it later? I'd go back into it and knead it and, yeah. Well, I might, maybe. Not the sentences, but I might, the, yeah. The connections, I might, um, you know, add a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the other things about Ireland, which, which, which I think makes it different, is that um, two years ago, the, in the fall of 2006, I was teaching at Austin in Texas. And the, the sort of hinterland, if you added all the other places, San Antonio, that were around there, were about the population of the Republic of Ireland, you know, about four and a half million. And while I was there... Not only did no new play open, but no play at all opened. And I think I 
you know, the sense of um, the only writers living there were writers who were attached to the universities in various ways. When I told them, for example, that um, I'm a member of the Arts Council in Ireland and our, our, our annual budget, which doesn't include the, for paying for museums, for example, but just our annual budget for paying for things like theatre companies um, and individual artists, um, is $100 million a year for just our population. But as I say, it doesn't include the large institutions like the National Gallery. Oh, 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 in, oh yeah, I, I mean, in, uh, in, in terms of art spending in the United States, it is an astronomical state. This is money that comes directly through the taxpayer, through the government, that the, that the Arts Council, as an independent body, spends without any, any political influence, although the, although the members are appointed by the, by the government. Um, but you're independent in, in, in that you, you don't have to do what the government says. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a huge amount of money. Um, and it means, for example, for us, that we're in the constant business in Ireland, in our relationship. I mean, when I saw you first, the first time I saw you, which was, I think it was 21 years ago, you were actually on the stage playing Aunt Dan in Aunt Dan and Lemon by Wally Sean um, in a young theatre company called Rough Magic, who have become now one of, one of our premier theatre companies. That sense, the constant business in the city of Dublin of once a month or twice a month sometimes going to a play that's either a new play or as an as a old play and a new production, by, you know, which is sort of wonderful in some way or other, that the city is alive in that sense. And I think that theatre has mattered enormously. Mm. Uh, you know, this is not just that Martin is an actor... And, and, and also runs a theatre, and that you, were, that you were an actress, but that our relationship to that spoken word, to the plays of Brian Friel, to the plays of John Millington Singh, to the fact that actors... Because we can, we can employ a lot of actors in the city, actors are in the city even more than writers are. You're listening to novelists Anne Enright and Colm Tobin. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Anne Enright and Colm Tobin in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. I'm Ted Chen in for Larry Mantle. Larry will be back on Monday and have a wrap-up of the state Democratic Convention and efforts to unify the party. He'll also have an update on the escalating violence in Iraq. Also, in the wake of the Bear Stearns collapse, do there need to be changes in the regulation of U.S. financial markets to protect investors and taxpayers? That's on the next Air Talk, Monday at 10 a.m. on 89.3 KPCC. Think elections. Think depth. Think context. Think for yourself. Election coverage on 89.3 KPCC and at kpcc.org. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC news on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC news, on air, online, and now on the phone, too. 89.3 KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh, my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff. You just have it. We can shock them a little, too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. 
We now return to novelists Anne Enright and Colm Tobin. I was talking to an audience last week and said that somebody uh, asked, uh, was there, had I trained as an actress? And I said, no, there's no training really for actors and actresses in Ireland. And everybody laughed because they thought, obviously, our Irish people didn't need training. Um, which made me pause because this is kind of performing instinct as well in the prose and a tendency to show off in the prose and exhibitionism <laughs> almost in the prose that perhaps comes from a tradition of where we aim to please. I mean, if you look at the tradition of performing among the African-American community, I would say that they have contradictory emotions about performance as an idea and Irish people too have contradictory ideas about performance because it is such uh, it's a it's a gift but it's a gift from the weak to the strong but you might as well you might as well have fun while you're doing it but it, it definitely that kind of streak of that runs through a lot of the work a lot of people's work you don't really understand an Irish writer until you hear them read and then you really do get them I think um, and I think something else that matters enormously for us and has always mattered, and mattered throughout the 19th century even, was the proximity to London. That I remember when, in our town, we, we had a beauty competition and we elected a strawberry queen because the only thing we grow around where I'm from is strawberries. I remember my uncle told me that, that they asked one of, the, one, of the, one of the queens, what would she do with the money? And she said, I'd feck off to England. You know? <laughs> and um, that, that business of fecking off to England which so many writers have done in so many ways. In other words, that, that, that both of us published in London and that I went, I was in, the, I was in London the night you won the, the Booker Prize. I was, I was there. And that through that, you know, that the business of winning something in London, I think, matters enormously in Ireland. Somebody said, what prizes do you have in Ireland? And I said, well, we have the Booker. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't worry too much about you know, getting our own together. And um, I, I mean, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think what's amazing about the Booker Prize, um, just, just, it's an astonishing fact, isn't it, that, that the book has sold in thirty-three languages, including Bengali. Yes, and, and Macedonian. A, a whole gang of Egypts goes across to London every time an Irish person is shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and has a great time. We you see, just I, really I lost it twice, you see, so I know this really well. What happens is that, that the, um, the publishers, the, you know, there are six authors shortlisted, and each publisher puts on a party for their staff with a big screen television, because the staff, everyone can't come to the dinner, and you can invite your friends. So, I, you know, so that if you're Irish, you invite the whole of Ireland to come over. And, you know, and they, they charter do. planes. And they I mean, you've no idea what it's like. So, they, they, of course, they scream at the television and they blame the Brits. I mean, in my case, when I didn't win, they blamed the Brits that I didn't win. And, of course, when she won, when she came in to the, to the hall, you know, after the thing, where all the Irish were waiting, we cheered as though she was a football player. We did the, we did the, the chant that we do for our winning football team. Ole, 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 Ireland, Ireland. And, and, and These are people with this degrees. This occurred to me first when the first time I was shortlisted, I was in London. And then I came back into Dublin um, on a Saturday. I was going down to the supermarket and people started to stop their cars and... Have I, have I finally been found out in some horrible way? Like, <laughs> why has it happened? And a man stopped his car, and he, someone who looked like his son got out of the car and went, yeah, like that, as though I was an athlete running for Ireland. And I, just, I had just written a book, and there was nothing I could do more, you know. But that, the, it, 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 it is a funny business, that, It is it? a very strange business. Also, I mean, I, the, I can't walk down the street any, without people congratulating me, which is very nice, because... People might find that intrusive in other societies, but it's your own people, you know? There's a great sense of your own about it. But the funny thing about the books in Ireland is that no one discusses the actual content. This is a public object, right? Well done, you have a public object. But the relationship between the reader and the writer is too intimate to be discussed. So no one says, it, it, page 63, you know? <laughs> I, they don't come up to you and say, wow, we never knew. You know, they don't do any of that. The, the contents of the book are altogether private, which is really bizarre. Just a, a sign of how powerful the books can be within, within the society. One of the more tedious things about writing in Ireland is that Ireland always talks about itself. 
So needs writers to add to that great national conversation. So what are we like? Well, you know, this is what McGahern says. And also it domesticates its writers very quickly and turns them into tourist objects. Um, I mean, if anyone's been there, notice the pub called, you know, years ago, that what they would have done to Oscar Wilde isn't mentionable. And now the number of pubs called the Oscar Wilde, mm. the James Joyce, the W.E. Yeats, the statues of them, that what I tried to describe at the beginning as sort of sonorously and seriously as I could is also, if, if I did it another way, is a description of a theme park. Yeah, I mean, and then when, when Bloomsday happens, which is wonderful that a whole city celebrates a book, it's fantastic, it's amazing... That's the 16th of June, you know. Uh, and everybody has a party. And you feel like a, a, a mouse who lives in Disneyland, you know, that they've got a big mouse in Disneyland. Right? But you're just scuttling around the, the thing. I going, I'm a real mouse. I forgot it was Bloomsday. <laughs> I forgot it was Bloomsday when Bloomsday, you know, I was trying to write a book. And, uh, but then I went down to the supermarket and I was coming up from out of Marks and Spencer's, which is across the road from Davy Burns, which is one of the crucial pubs of Ulysses. So I came out with two Marks and Spencer's bags, and I was walking along, you know, feeling bewildered by things generally. And someone said to me, so what are you? Meaning he presumed I was a character out of Ulysses because people dress up, you know, people behave for the whole day, and they go around the city as an object from Ulysses. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a funny character in Ulysses that no one knows what he's doing in the book called The Man with the Macintosh. And he appears regularly in every chapter. And, you know, Leopold Bloom sees a man with a Macintosh. He's at Paddy Dignam's funeral, a man with a Macintosh. So a, a person in Dublin will decide for that whole day to go around Dublin in a Macintosh, and he's the man with the Macintosh. So they presumed that I was somebody. Because I, I, I was just going home with, 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 from the supermarket. Um, and then the big problem is that Glasnevin Cemetery, where the, you know, one, of the, one of the great moments of Ulysses, where, where the funeral happens, is now the main crematorium of the city. You know, not in the book, but in that funny thing we call life. So there are people going out there with their loved ones to the crematorium, and they don't feel good about this. And in the middle of all this on Bloomsday, there are all these funny people in Edwardian hats and um, funny costumes going out there with a big laugh um, as well. And they, and they meet each other, you know, and that's hard, where life meets the book, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. Mm. Well, How do you? I, I, I saw you on television after you won the prize, making very clear to the Irish people that in case anyone thought this book was about your family, it was not. Yeah, that was obviously an important thing to make clear, wasn't it? Because people presume that you must be writing about them. People presume that they're in the book and and are get quite cross if they're not. <laughs> um, you know, Edna O'Brien's books were burnt in uh, the village uh, square where she grew up. In partly in response to the content, but secretly also in response to the um, accuracy of the portrayals of the locals in the book. So, yes, no, people, it's like the brain makes patterns. People read themselves into books all the time. I, 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 don't, have a, I don't have a problem with... with the, I, did I do that? I guess it's a bit of a blur, actually. It was about, yes, a bit like did, a yes, car yes. crash. I was, it was like it was happening to someone else and in slow motion. So, yes, I suppose because the family in the book is so miserable, I had to make clear that my own family is happy, happy <laughs> <laughs> and small. Um, but it hasn't bothered any of my siblings or my family at all. The book hasn't, so, so they know. We didn't have creative writing courses. I mean, it's just, the concept simply didn't exist. And they're, they're creeping in now. Almost in the same way as sort of McDonald's drive-in is creeping in, you know that that um, most universities now are building departments of of creative writing. That if you wanted to be a writer, you simply wrote. But um, you were the first. I, I mean, you were in the very few Irish writers who actually went to one of those courses, which was at the time I think the only one in the two islands, which was run by Malcolm Bradbury in East Anglia, which was the one Ian McEwan went to say. I mean, what was that like going over there for that, and what did you learn there? Well, I, I followed in the footsteps of Glenn Patterson, who is not only a good writer, but also the most charming man in Ulster. And they all loved Glenn, and that was what Irish writing was. But the, the specifics of doing a creative writing course are in order. We weren't very career-minded then in the way that people are now, but it, was, it would help you get a publisher, it would help you get an agent. And also they gave me £3,000, which was more than I had. Mm. Hitherto, mm. I had £40 a week to live on, uh, which was £6 more than the dole. So that was a good reason to do it. And uh, it's taken me a very long time to 
answer the question, did, did you learn anything? Because what I wrote, I, I, I binned, and I had a very long and, and, and lonely year trying, to, uh, trying and failing to write. The, only, uh, the answer I finally come to is that you're not taught anything in creative writing co- courses, but you do learn and so the people who are running the course are like the guardians of this process. They're going to keep you safe while you go off and learn. Nothing they say is going to make any difference to you. But as long as they say it in a very nice tone of voice, you'll feel better. And, um, and in that sense, um, uh, Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter were both... They, they, Malcolm Bradbury made us feel very safe, and Angela Carter made us feel like we could do anything. You know, so that was wonderful. I remember, I mean, in 1976, at a demonstration in Barcelona for democracy, being chased by police with batons down a, down a street. And it's something, if once it happens to you, I don't know, there may be people here, but, you know, I mean, it's really very frightening because if you look behind, you feel that they'll, you know, you'll slow down. So you just keep running and not knowing at any moment a baton is going to hit you on the back of the head. And I remember teaching creative writing and, um, when, when there were riots going on in Oaxaca. I was saying to the students, you know, I wonder if you're all better here listening to me or would you be all better to go down to Oaxaca and see if you could get beaten on the back of the head by a baton? Because if you could get beaten on the back of the head by a baton, it would give you... I think it would sharpen your prose style immensely. <laughs> but it would also give you something that you could write about really with absolute security that this is something I know about, what it's like to... You know, and covering your head and they're hitting your hands and your elbows and how do you stop them hitting you? How do you... You know, all those things that once they would happen to you, you would tend then to put into your book soon and, and immediately... And it might be better than coming to my creative writing class, even though I'm sure you're learning a lot here. I mean, mean, what do you think? Um, Well, you did say about a young poet once. I said um, he needs to have his heart broken. That would improve his verse. And you said, what about his arm? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, W.H. Auden said, as much neurosis as the child can take. When people said, how do you make a writer? As much neurosis as the child can take. Do you agree with that? Uh, um, well, I think you have to have some central place of esteem to be able to write, perhaps. Yeah, so as, w- without being fatally or finally damaged, yes, as much as... Uh, I mean, a lot of writers say that they write because they can't do anything else, that, they're, that, they, that they make themselves incompetent in every other way so that they just do this. It's still a mystery to me why it's so necessary for me to write, and because somebody asked me recently, why do you need to write? And it seemed to be such a strange question. Doesn't everybody, I thought. Isn't that what you do? Isn't that... um, But I I think, and maybe this relates back to the Irish question, it must finally be something very... some very core business of self-esteem. But for me, it's, 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 uh, it's about existing, that the fact that you might not exist if you don't write... I mean, whatever that's about. I'm going to have to think about that for a while. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for questions from the Sokolo audience for novelists Anne Enright and Colm Tobin. Hi, my name's Maureen Grady. I wondered if Anne Enright would speak about being a woman in what Evan Boland has called a very patriarchal tradition, and, and she's done a great deal for women, the woman poet, I believe. Yes. Um, could you speak to that? The women poets are great now, in, in the way that the Northern Irish poets had a kind of surge, and it makes you feel that there's something that, is, that needs to be said, that can only be said in poetry, for example, that uh, there aren't that many literary uh, novelists who are women. The tradition may be patriarchal, but the country is quite residually matriarchal, so that's kind of interesting um, as a a, a juxtaposition. But when people ask me why there aren't more Irish women writers, as there are so many fantastic Irish men writers, one of the things I say is that there must be something that Irish women cannot bring themselves to say. (laughs) And when people say, your work is angry, sometimes I want to say, not angry enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you want angry? I can do angry. This is really nice. But um, 
It's interesting. I don't know whether the literary moment has passed. There aren't as many new writers coming on stream as there were. So I don't know if this generation will be the generation and, and, and the, the, you know, or the women will come out. You look at England and there's so many fantastic women novelists coming through now that the, the, much of the strength of the British tradition is in the, the novelists, uh, the, the women novelists. Irish women are reared to be lovely and to continue being lovely until they become mildly sort of martyred. They're reared to be competent, pleasant, friendly, and, all the, and to keep being. And Irish feminism wants them to be that too. <laughs> it's not as if... Irish women are supposed to be wonderful. In order to write books, you have to be obsessional, unpleasant, <laughs> as complex as you like. You have to forget about your fear of being disliked. I sometimes think that women would do anything not to be disliked. They don't understand it. Whereas men know that if they're disliked, it means they're successful. (laughs) Result, you know. So I've loads to say about that, but nothing constructive. You've been listening to award-winning novelists Anne Enright and Colm Tobin. This is Socolo Radio, the on-air home of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socolo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to socolola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenshole. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. APCC. Support for this public radio podcast comes from Acura, featuring the TL Type S with a 286-horsepower V6 and real-time traffic alerts. Learn more at Acura.com.